Well, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And as we think about the passing of Sandy and perhaps other people in your immediate circle of friendships, you may know people who've gone to heaven, and whenever that happens, it kind of prompts naturally a time of self-reflection. You think about her life, Sandy's life, you think about your friends' lives, and you consider how do they measure up in regards to the Word of God? Did they follow Christ faithfully? And then you quickly turn on yourself. Am I following Christ faithfully? We have these moments of self-reflection. Sometimes they happen on birthdays. Other times they happen on the New Year's Eve or maybe on the 1st of January. Sometimes it's prompted by a conversation or a sermon. Self-reflection is appropriate in our lives. And I think we as humans do that often. And in those times, it's inevitable that we will have some regrets as we evaluate honestly where we are in life, especially as Christians, that we know that we haven't done everything right. And so there will be some regrets, but that's understood. Because to err is human, therefore regret is a part of life. Studies have shown that regret is the second most frequently mentioned emotion after love. Perhaps you reviewed your life in the COVID period and you've regretted the way you've spent some of your time in the last 18 months. Maybe you wish you did some things differently. Or perhaps regret comes from your financial decisions or perhaps family decisions or romantic decisions. Whatever category of life you might be evaluating, sometimes we have regret in those evaluations. But when we open up the Bible we realize and recognize that God also has some regrets. There's a few passages in the Bible that say God regretted. One of the most famous is in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 and uh, verse 5, this is right before the flood. We know that story well as God evaluates humanity and he looks at the heart of man, and he says this in verse 5, The Lord saw the wickedness of man, it was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God regretted, or the Lord regretted, that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved. That's one of those famous verses right before the flood, that God looks at humanity, the sinful humanity, and it says he regretted He relented. He repented. Changed his mind, some translations may say. Well, there's a few of those passages. One one of the more extensive of those passages is our passage for this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 15. It says, when God evaluated the life of Saul, a specific incident caused God to regret. To regret Saul. Now, this is not going to be a message where I'm going to solve all of your theological questions about God's sovereignty and free will. And what does it mean for God to regret when God doesn't change? It says it very clearly in Hebrews chapter 6 and in Numbers as well. But when you see that language in the Bible, to kind of put it in brief, it's anthropomorphic language. What that means is that the writers of Scripture want us to understand the plan of God, and how God interacts with humanity. And in order for us to understand to a small, finite degree what God is doing and how God sees 
man's sin, that language is used, regret, change, relent, perhaps remorse. And so it's a way for God to help us understand that as he moves humanity through his sovereign plan, there are times when mankind do things that are offensive to God, sinful. And the way God reacts to those incidents is what we see in our passage. God regrets. It doesn't mean that God would then all of a sudden change his sovereign plan. No, God's sovereign plan will not be altered. He's moving history towards the final culmination when Jesus Christ reigns forever and ever. Right? He's king. He's Lord. And we will all bow before him one day. And every tongue and every knee, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow down before him. But in these passages, what we see God doing is God is explaining to us that disobedience is offensive to God. Sin is offensive to God. And if, it, if we were able to somehow explain that in human language, this is what it would be like. And then we have these statements. It would be a statement of regret, a statement of rejection, as we'll see even in our own passage this morning. I want to pick up on this language of regret. And I want us to evaluate ourselves this morning. In our passage, God regrets making Saul king. But if God were to evaluate your life, my life, how would God respond? Would God have certain regrets to use that biblical language? Now, understand this. This passage is not about salvation. It's about service. It's very clear. Saul was made king in God's sovereign plan. And he was to serve the people of God, Israel, for the period that God gave him, 40 years. He was supposed to do that. But in doing so, God reflected on his service as king, and God evaluated that period, and God regretted it. So when we talk about this passage, please do not in any way think we're talking about salvation. God regrets salvation. God regrets saving you. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being faithful to serve God in the ministry that God has given you. And in the way you do it, if God was to evaluate it, would there be any regret? Hopefully that's clear. Because if we kind of move away from this specific parameter, then we might get into heresy. And I don't want to get into heresy. So this passage is about service, not salvation. But as we begin the story of Saul, and I'll read the passage for us in just a few minutes. We have to understand that Saul was the first king of Israel, which is a very important and elevated position. He was the first king ever. And if you read the book of Judges, you understand why there had to be a king. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, a tribe that we know had a reputation of being fierce in battle. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 27, when Jacob on his deathbed is praying over his sons and kind of talking about all of them, what their future would look like, this is what he says about Benjamin, the tribe from which Saul would come. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the plunder. In other words, Benjamin would become a very successful military tribe. Now, not always did they use that to the glory of God. Sometimes it was to abuse the people. Just read the ending of Judges. But that was the reputation. It was an elite tribe. Multiple biblical heroes were Benjamites. Think about Esther. 
She was a Benjamite. Think about Ehud, who was the second judge in the book of Judges. He was a left-handed assassin. He was the one who stuck the sword into the belly of King Eglon, who was the king of Moab. And then the, the, the man, he was very obese, and the fat, it says, covered him up, the sword. He was, Ehud, was from this tribe of Benjamin. Paul, the apostle Paul, who was named after King Saul, actually. Remember his pre-Christian name, right? Saul. He was a Benjamite. He talks about that in Philippians chapter 3. So coming from the tribe of Benjamin was a big deal. You were an elite individual. It's like you went to an Ivy League school. Not everybody got to experience that. And then when the Bible introduces Saul in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, it says he was tall and the most handsome in all of Israel. Imagine having that on your reputation, on your resume. I am the most handsome in the entire country. That's pretty good. I'm the most beautiful woman in the entire country. Well, as the story develops and we reflect on Saul's life, he actually lived up to the reputation of the Benjamites. He was a successful military leader at the beginning. Read 1 Samuel 10, 11, 12. You'll see him acting in a way that is a strong leader would do. God honored his obedience initially in this service as king. But then when we open up chapter 15, it's still early in Saul's world career, just so you know. In this chapter, unfortunately, we see Saul disobeying God. In verse 22, I bet many of you have memorized it. We get that famous principle, to obey is better than sacrifice. And in this story, that principle hinges upon a word that repeats over and over, nine times, listen, listen, listen. It's the word Shema. You've heard that before, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, or listen, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Right? That's the word that appears here repeatedly. And it opens and closes the story that we're about to read together. In verse 1 of chapter 15, this is what we read. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman and child and infant and ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the ox and the fatlings, the lambs and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they destroyed utterly. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul and was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to Samuel, blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I'm hearing? Saul said, well, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh, your God, but the rest who have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, let me tell you what the Lord has said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, they took the spoil, sheep, ox, and the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And so Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who's better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind for he's not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. And Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, 
for Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Listen to the words of the Lord, 15.1, verse 24. I feared the people and listened to their voice. I think those are the two options every single person has. That's the watershed. That's the Rubicon in our lives. Will you listen to the voice of God, the word of God, or will you listen to the people? And I think in today's culture, not country, but certainly globally, that decision is more pressing than ever. Are we going to listen to the pressure of the people around us, whether it's the LGBTQ lobbyists or it's some other agenda that is directly anti-biblical? Will we recognize their agenda, whether it's to call them by their preferred gen- uh, uh, pronoun or perhaps in some way celebrate, as we know in the school system now, the pressure is greater than ever. How are we going to respond when people demand certain things of us that are clearly contrary to the word of God? You see, I think for us, the application is this. Every single time we have this opportunity to listen to the voice of God or to listen to the people, the decision that we choose will get us closer and closer To God either regretting the ministry, the responsibilities that he's given you, or approving the ministry, the responsibilities that he's given you. Because listening to the word of God will ultimately determine how you live your life. And that's one of those lessons that we get from this story. Twice it says God regretted, and three times it says God rejected. That's his legacy, Saul's legacy, that God ultimately evaluated his life and there was regret. And I want to present to you two elements that will help us avoid God's regret over your life. Two elements that will help us to make sure that God will not regret your life, your service, your ministry. The first is we need to prioritize our relationship with God, and this may sound really bad, even over ministry to God. Prioritize your relationship with God over ministry to God or for God. Look at verse 11. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. And then has not carried out my commands. When Jesus met people initially, his first requirement wasn't to go and preach the gospel. It wasn't to go and save and heal and cast out demons. His first requirement was, follow me. You can see that in Mark chapter 1, you can see that in John chapter 1, and you can see that all over Matthew and Luke. Jesus meets people and then he says to his disciples, follow me, listen to Mark 1.17, and then I will make you fishers of man. Following precedes any kind of ministry, any kind of evangelistic responsibility. In John 12.26, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, 
You want to serve me? You want to be in the kingdom of God? You want to be useful in the kingdom of God? If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Again, following is a requirement, a prerequisite to having a useful and a faithful ministry for Christ. And so here the first statement is, he has turned back from following me. This is where it all begins. Ultimately, the slide towards regret and rejection and, and disapproval from God, this is the beginning point. You begin to minimize your re- relationship with God. You begin to skip your prayer times. You begin to skip your personal study times, your devotions, your, your meditation of Scripture. And then ultimately, and then it says, and he has not carried out my commands. And so what follows from this in Saul's life is in verse 15, verse 21, verse 30, we see the same statement. Verse 15, for example, kind of towards the end. He, the people, spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. Not our God. Saul is excluding himself from that statement. Three times. Because now there's a gap in that relationship. He won't even say, Yahweh is also my God. But that's what happens when we begin to prioritize something more than a relationship with God. But then look at verse 13. Samuel says to Saul, Saul, and then Saul said to him rather, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. In verse 20, he repeats himself. I have carried out the command, but I went to the mission and I have brought back Agag and I destroyed utterly the Amalekites. Now that's a lie. We know that. He hasn't utterly destroyed the Amalekites. So he's lying to Samuel. But in his mind, he thinks that he has done exactly what God wanted him to do. So now there's a perversion of understanding the word of God. This is what it says, but then this is what you do because you've twisted it. You've changed it to accommodate your own preferences. And then you said, I have obeyed it. I am obedient to God's word. My own version of the word of God. I was talking to somebody on this trip about a pastor um, who spent a lot of time in, on a train or in a car and planes and so on. So we had time to talk. And um, we talked about how in the world can somebody justify homosexuality biblically? You can't apart from twisting scripture that's it we probably saw the news last week that now certain christians are defending abortion did you see that in the news and they're saying the bible does not condemn abortion they're saying the christian uh, pro-life ethic is based on one disputed word in one verse and they twisted it they took this minor variant reading something that's found in one of the manuscripts but nowhere else and they've built their whole pro-life ethic on it now that's a lie because you have so many verses in so many biblical books on anti-abortion position right but again christians are twisting scripture to accommodate their own understanding of who God is and what God demands of them. This is how bankrupt Saul's relationship with God is, is that he's now contradicting the word of God and God's expectation, his direct command. Now, we have to understand, why would God tell Saul 300 years after the Exodus to wipe out the Amalekites? 
Well, let's go quickly to Exodus chapter 17 to understand why this command would come three centuries later and why God would say, wipe everybody out. From the male leaders to the male adults to the women to the children to all the animals. This is harem would be the term for this. Something that is cursed by God and needs to be completely wiped out. Exodus 17 verse 8. So Israel is moving from Egypt to Canaan. And they stumble upon the Amalekites. Verse 8, Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him. And he fought against Amalek and Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hands up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hands down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sunset. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And then we see that the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar, named it, the Lord is my banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So Amalek wasn't just resisting the people of God. He was resisting God. And so now, setting himself against God, God has now set himself against Amalek. And centuries later, final judgment from God would come through Saul. That's the reason why we have 1 Samuel 15 in our Bibles. To prove that what God promised in Exodus 17 actually did take place. That that prophecy would be fulfilled and it's supposed to be fulfilled in our passage. Saul, however, understanding the word of God and he understands the stories. He understands what Amalek did. And so he's supposed to fulfill God's vengeance. But he doesn't. He goes soft. Amalek. He adjusts downward God's expectations and then disobeys, ultimately disobeys. In this instance, when we're in a moment of unfaithfulness to God, of sin, we overstate our obedience, as Saul does, right? And we understate our disobedience, as Saul does. In our own minds, things become a little bit twisted. We're not as bad as we really are. And we're better than we really are. There's a change that happens in our own self-understanding. And in verse 25, we see that there's a completely wrong view of God. Saul says to Samuel, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. He doesn't even appeal to God for repentance. Remember when David sinned? How does Psalm 51 explain David's repentance? Against you and you alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In other words, you have Saul's repentance pleading with Samuel to forgive him versus David pleading with God to forgive him. There's a misunderstanding of who you're sinning against when you have now begun to twist God's expectations and God's understanding and teaching 
Ultimately, all sin is, in the, is against God. And this is the beauty of the gospel, is that when we repent and ask for forgiveness, we're not asking for forgiveness of just the people around us. We're asking a forgiveness of God, the one whom we ultimately offended. Which is why hell has to be eternal, because the offense is against an eternal God. Therefore, judgment and discipline has to be in of eternal consequence. When people ask you, why is there eternal hell? When it's just a lie. It's just thievery. Why? It's not that big of a deal. It's because of who you're sinning against. And it demands appropriate justice. And so we plead with God for forgiveness. And if you are still trying to figure out what Christianity is all about, what being a Christian is all about. This is what it's all about. It's coming to God and asking Him for forgiveness. Recognizes that you have been sinning against Him, rebelling against Him, living a life that is not pleasing to Him. And we read in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. But the specific Greek is of every single sin. In that verse, every single sin is forgiven of. And then we're welcomed into his kingdom, into his family. Saul should have known better. He should have known that sin is an offense against God. And in verse 15, he says to Samuel, look, we've spared the best of the sheep, the oxen. Why? To sacrifice to the Lord, your God. But everything else was destroyed. So he thinks the aroma of grilled lamb is more pleasing to God than the aroma of obedience. Because in verse 22, to obey, to obey is better than sacrifice. What sacrifice? The sacrifice of verse 15. God isn't looking for you to give him the best sheep and the best oxen. He's looking for you to obey him. That's what he wants. That's what he's more pleased with. But that's always been the case. It's not just a New Testament concept that God wants uh, worship from the heart. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 say the following. Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes. In other words, there was always an expectation of sincerity from the heart, not just mere sacrifice, going through the motions of rituals. No, God always wanted obedience and affection from the heart. Listen to Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. This is how fed up God became with Israel's sacrifices. Israel, uh, Isaiah 1.10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. So in God's mind, the Israelites became as bad as the Sodomites. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no more. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbaths, the calling of the assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Now that's specific to Israel, but the principle behind the scenes is appropriate to us. God wants obedience, not just prayers. God wants total obedience, not just sacrifices. Even if it's the choicest of the lamb and the oxen. God wants our ministry, our service, to flow from our relationship. In Psalm 27, verse 8, it says this, When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I will seek. God wants us to seek his face, and then the ministry is a response because of our affection for God. So that's the first element. Making sure that God doesn't regret your life, your service, my life, my service, make sure that you prioritize your relationship with God. Secondly, prioritize approval from God over approval from man. Prioritize approval from God over approval from man. So the story starts out by saying God regrets Saul back in verse 11. The second half of that verse, Samuel is distressed and he cries out to the Lord all Night. The language here in the original Hebrew is descriptive of an individual who is so emotionally distraught. He is so, uh, so many tears and so much weeping and so much angst and anxiety going on that he can't control himself. This isn't just one little tear coming down Samuel's face. This is a prayer that lasts all night, that is filled with tears and emotions and wailing and weeping. Because he understands that disobedience to God is that severe. And it requires somebody to be distraught over your own disobedience. This is Samuel's response to Saul's disobedience while Saul, in verse 12, goes to Carmel and sets up a monument for himself. Do you see the opposing response? He thinks he's done what God wanted him to do. So to commemorate that, he's going to build a statue, a monument for himself. So nobody will ever forget his obedience. That's what he's trying to do here. So while Samuel is weeping... Saul is celebrating. This is the reflection of an arrogant, self-absorbed, self-impressed individual. He's kissing babies. He's shaking hands. He's cutting the ribbon before the monument. He probably invited Amalek. Hey, look, check out the monument. This is pretty cool, right? My victory over you. Now, if you were to read the story, chapters 13 and 14... Samuel's um, approval ratings are really low. I mean, Saul's rather. Because he almost killed his own son, Jonathan. Remember that story? And the people intervened and protected Jonathan's life. And at that point, Saul's rankings are dropping, like somebody else's these days. (laughs) So he thinks, okay, if I got this victory and I get this monument, then maybe my rankings will go up. And we know that because of what we'll see in just a few minutes. In that moment, Saul cares more about his public image. 
his reputation than his soul. And Samuel is the one who cares more about his soul. I'm sure there are people in our lives that we love, care for, and we've evangelized for a long time. I know I have a friend of 20 years, back from my undergraduate days, who have evangelized for 20 years, regularly, every year. We meet up multiple times a year, and we talked about the gospel basically every single time. He's still not a Christian. But I've never prayed all night in weeping and over his soul. Have you? How much do we really care about the people that we love and their soul? I'm not saying we now need to spend the rest of our lives every single night not sleeping but crying and praying. But this is an insight into somebody who actually understands sin, judgment, and the consequences on a person's soul. And there might be times that are appropriate to spend praying for an extended period of time for somebody, like in this story. Samuel's grief and angst doesn't end that night. Because in verse 35, it says that Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul. The implication is, for the rest of his life, he was grieving over Saul. And they never saw each other again after this incident. Now, there are a couple times that I, we see in this story when I read it, that it seems that Saul is remorseful. Look at verse 24. Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to them. Verse 25, please pardon my sin. Then verse 27, as Samuel turns, Saul seizes his robe and it tore. And verse 30 gives us an insight. What is the true motivation behind these statements of remorse and regret and repentance? Verse 30, Saul says, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders and before Israel. The motivation for repentance wasn't his understanding of offending God. It was his own reputation. It was his own position. He didn't want to lose the position of being king. And so he wanted the leadership to see him pious. And he wanted the people to see him worshiping God. But he needed Samuel's affirmation in order to be accepted in that regard. He was motivated by fear of man, approval from man more than approval from God. And that sounds just like what we read in John chapter 12. Towards the end of that chapter, this is the closing of Jesus' public ministry. It says in verse 36, and then he went and hid himself away from them. In other words, Jesus is gone. Chapters 13 through 17 of John focus on the upper room discourse. It's his personal, private, final meal with his disciples and final teaching with his disciples. But in that closing of public, the public ministry of Jesus, it says that many Jewish leaders believed in him. But for fear from other Jewish leaders, they refused to acknowledge him as Messiah. For they preferred the approval of man rather than approval from God. And that's the second point. Who do you... Whose approval do you care more about? Human approval or God's approval? 
Saul got to this point in his life of caring more about what man thought than what God thought? From verse 11, he stopped following after God. It all goes back to the first principle. Because his obedience, his repentance was motivated more by being appropriately viewed by mankind, by humans, by his leaders, his fellow Israelites, than by God. George Mueller is the one who said, the most important task for me today is not how much I can serve God or how many people I can serve, but how to make my heart happy in the Lord. That's the principle of making sure that your relationship with God is prioritized, even over ministry to God at times. And I would encourage that we pray for each other in this regard. This is a big church with a lot of ministry opportunities, and sometimes we feel guilty for not engaging in those ministry opportunities, don't we? I do think, though, a bigger problem is that we overcommit, and we overengage, and we overserve, and sometimes to the neglect of our own relationship with God. And I think we have to be careful. I'm not saying please stop serving. No, please keep serving. We need you to serve. We need all of us to serve. We find joy in service. But we need to make sure that we don't slip all the way down and we forget about our relationship with God. And so let's pray for each other in that regard. Pray for our pastors. Pray for our elders that we will always have the right motivation for service, but also for the times of disobedience that our repentance will be motivated by Pleasing God, not man. Well, we go back to the story. And in verse 20, Saul says, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed him. But the people. Isn't it ironic that the people he was trying to please, right? He's a a person who fears man. He has a problem with that issue. He struggles with it. But the same audience he was trying to please, he now turns against. When there's somebody more important in the room that people are trying to approve of and kind of get their approval from, all of a sudden become irrelevant. Now you want to please this more important individual, Samuel in this case. And so he turns on the people completely and says, they are at fault, not me. I did exactly what God told me to do. But they're the ones who took the cattle and the sheep and the oxen. I had nothing to do with that. But Samuel's response is exactly the lesson that we need to remember. To obey is better than sacrifice. Look at what he says after that. Rebellion, verse 23, is just like divination. Insubordination is just like idolatry. I hope that shakes you a little bit. Because what Samuel is saying is if you don't obey the word of God, might as well go become a witch and a warlock and start worshiping demons. Disobedience, look at verse 23 again, is just like divination. That's witchcraft. That's shocking. So if you're not going to obey God fully, then give up the whole thing and go be a witch or a warlock. And if you're going to be insubordinate, verse 23, then go and worship idols. Go become a Hindu. Go become a Muslim. 
Because that doesn't matter. Your partial obedience doesn't matter to God. It doesn't do anything. Do you see the radical statement here? That's scary. Because oftentimes we offer partial obedience. But in God's eyes, unless it's connected to a heart that is fully in love with Him, an undivided heart, a pure heart, a clean heart, it's just like we're offering witchcraft to God. or We're worshiping demons. And so then, as I said earlier, five times there's a statement of regret and rejection. And God rejects him, verse 23. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you. Verse 26, God has rejected you. Verse 27, God will tear your kingdom from you as it extends into verse 28. He's going to give it to somebody better than you. This is the lesson for us. God will replace you and remove the ministry from you. If you choose to not obey God, if you choose not to prioritize your relationship with God, and it doesn't matter how high you up, he was the king. He was the most important person in Israel. And God says, I will remove him. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Didn't matter. Your pedigree doesn't matter. Your heritage doesn't matter. Your position doesn't matter. Your physical appearance doesn't matter. He was the most beautiful God doesn't care. God has no partiality. He says, I will replace you. I will reject you if you choose not to follow me and obey me. Why? Because of the principle that we learn in verse 7 of chapter 16. When Samuel goes out looking for David, he has a problem of looking at the physical appearance, right? He's looking for the next most beautiful man in Israel. The tallest, the handsomest. And God says, stop it. Stop, Samuel. You made that mistake last time. Stop it. Why? Because God doesn't see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's the principle. God wants your heart. God wants our obedience. And in verse 35, the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Isn't it sad that the opening words from God and the closing words of God in this story, verse 11, verse 35, are the same. Regret. But God isn't partial. Fast forward 80 years. And you get to the end of Solomon's reign. And in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 9, we read the following. 1 Kings uh, 11, 9. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And he commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Samuel, because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you today, I will certainly tear the kingdom from you. The same language that was used to describe Saul losing his kingdom is now that describes David's house. Losing the kingdom. It goes from Saul to David's house to then ultimately Jeroboam. Even the messianic lineage doesn't matter to God. God is not going to be partial. God will tear the kingdom away, the service position away, even from the representative of the messianic line for disobedience 
God will never look to man's preferences when he ultimately has to make that decision and judgment. Are you seeking approval from man and not God, as Saul was? And are you preferring your service over your relationship? That's the lesson for us as we reflect on our lives. Whatever may prompt you to reflect on your life these days. I hope that God doesn't look at your life and then says, I regret it that I gave that person that responsibility because he or she wasn't faithful. And I end with the story of John Wesley. John Wesley was an individual who we know from church history was a preacher. And he wasn't perfect, definitely not perfect. He lived in England in the 1700s. He had 14 siblings and he spent 54 years of preaching the gospel. 44,000 sermons. He traveled by horseback, covered over 200,000 miles in his ministry career. And I'm going to give you some statistics so that we can understand the significance of his ministry and then his final words. He wrote four, a four-volume commentary on the whole Bible, a dictionary of the English language, five-volume work on natural philosophy, a four-volume work on church history. He wrote histories of England and Rome. He wrote grammars on Hebrew, Latin, Greek, French, and English. He wrote three works on medicine, six volumes on church music, seven volumes of sermons and various papers. He edited a 54-volume work known as the Christian Library, in addition to the 44,000 sermons that he preached. You can see his life was consumed with ministry. And I don't know anybody who's that productive. He got got up at 4 a.m. and worked until 10 p.m. every day. And then he traveled. At age 83, he was saddened that he could not study for more than 15 hours a day because his eyes began to hurt. At 86, he was ashamed to not be able to preach more than twice a day. In the the 86th year of his life, he preached in almost every single shire in England and Wales, riding 30 to 50 miles a day on horseback. But listen to his words, final words. As for reputation... Though it be a glorious instrument of advancing our master's service, yet there is something better than that. A clean heart, a single eye, and a soul full of God. As he reflected on his own ministry and service for God, he said, what's better than all that is a heart that's full of God. Be faithful. Be productive. Serve the Lord but do not neglect your heart. Let's pray. Lord God, as you regretted Saul as king, and then ultimately Solomon and so many others, we ask that we would not fall into that same category of regrets, that we would live a life that is most pleasing to you because it's attached to a heart that is full of love for you. Lord God, I pray for every single person here, including myself and every single pastor and elder and every single attendee of Grace Church, that all of us would prioritize our relationship with you above everything else and that all of us would seek approval from you above approval from men. We want to be pleasing to you because we want to hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant, and turn to the joy of your master. But we will only hear them if our hearts are filled with love for you. We pray this to the honor of your name. Amen.